Good morning. Take a seat. Make yourself comfortable. Okay. So, I am not that old. <laughs> but I'm old enough where I have been around long enough to observe change, you know? Change in the world, change in the culture, the conversations we're having in the public sphere of life and such. And I've noticed that more and more and more the conversations that you hear in the world are conversations pertaining to how we identify, right? Uh, how do you identify? Um, so many of the conversations you hear, that's kind of uh, uh, what the topic is. And a lot of times it's pertaining to race or gender or sexuality or such. How do you identify? It's super, super important. We've figured this out, right? And if you listen, uh, underneath it all, there's kind of this idea, there's kind of this uh, understanding that if we can get in touch with our deepest true identity, if we can, if we can find it and embrace it, the, the truth of who we are, it's going to unlock for us the ability to walk in our full potential and fulfillment, right? I think that's just kind of a, an idea that we've embraced. And for that reason, so much of the conversation that the world has is about identity. Because once more, if you can find and embrace your true identity, then and only then can you walk in fulfillment and full potential. If you can find and embrace your true identity. Where does that idea come from? Would it surprise you if I told you it came from the Bible? There's this idea that, you know, you have uh, philosophers, theologians, or you have philosophers and, and uh Scientists and um, psychologists and such um, climbing a mountain, and what they find there is the you know the student of the Bible is sitting there, is <laughs> already there. Um, this idea unlocking your true fulfillment and potential. A huge part of it is knowing the truth of who you are, your identity, and while. The conversations of the world are primarily focused on, like I said, matters of race, gender, sexuality, and such. And all of those things are significant, don't get me wrong. All those things are worthy of conversation. There actually is a, a deeper, greater identity that God wants to give us that has the ability to much, much, much more 
unlock what I am saying, our deepest, truest fulfillment and potential. As important as race, gender, and sexuality is, that's not where you are going to find. That's not where you're going to find the deepest, truest sense of who you were created to be. So what are we doing today? What are we doing? We're going to look at the first part of the Apostle John's first letter. And uh, I'm going to read it, and then, and then you'll see why I bring up this conversation, why I tell you this is a biblical idea uh, about finding your true identity. So 1 John um, chapter 1, beginning verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So once more, this is John the Apostle writing his letter. He's saying, we saw Jesus. We saw eternal life. We touched it. It's probably pertaining to what we talked about last week in regards to the resurrection, the resurrected body. The hope we have, he touched it. He touched the flesh of resurrection. But, but, here, he's saying something here. He's saying, in essence, he's saying what we have found, we proclaim so that you can have what we have. Okay, that's, that's what he said. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have this fellowship, this fellowship of knowing him, you can have it also. And that's what, what this letter is pertaining to. But before we go into that, just a little, um, a little uh, understanding of who this fellow is who's writing, writing this letter. John, he wants us to have what he has. Who is he and what does he have? So John wrote the letter. John, I uh, can read about him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, he was the son of a guy named Zebedee, and uh, that was his father. His mother's name was apparently Salome. He had a brother named James. So John and James were both uh, called by Jesus to be one of the disciples. They were fishermen at the time. John was kind of a, uh, John and his brother were kind of, Wild, uh, tough, uh, could even perhaps use the word violent people. Jesus called them sons of thunder, okay, for good reason. Um, and we'll get into that. But anyways, so that's who John was, and he wrote this letter that we're looking at, but he's also the author of, you guessed it, the book of John. If you're familiar, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four stories of Jesus' life, what we call the, the Gospels. Um, and there's kind of an amusing thing in the book of John, right? Whenever John is referring to himself in the book, he doesn't use his name. He calls himself 
the apostle whom Jesus loved. And it's, it's, it's a little, it's definitely eye-catching and it's a little uh, amusing. It's kind of like, well, Peter and the apostle whom Jesus loved were going to the tomb. Mary came and spoke with the apostle whom Jesus loved. And, and like I say, it's kind of a, amusing. And you have to ask the question, what is he doing here? Okay, I mean, at first glance, it might even sound a little conceited, you know? The apostle whom Jesus loved. Like, John, you know there's other apostles. <laughs> you know Jesus loved them also, you know? <laughs> like, why are you referring to yourself as the one whom Jesus loved? I mean, even your own book talks about how Jesus, you know, loved so-and-so and loved so-and-so. So we know he's not speaking of himself as being uniquely the one whom Jesus loved. But nevertheless, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. What is he doing there? What, what's the point he's trying to make? Because he is trying to make a point. Like I said, he was John, the, the son of Zebedee and the son of Salome. He was a fisherman, brother of James. But those weren't the things in which he grasped and embraced when it pertained to his identity of who he was. Not even his name, John, Okay? He doesn't even refer to himself as his name. It's just the one Jesus loved. That is at the core of his identity. That is what he is grasping to and holding to and embracing. In the deepest sense, who am I? Yes, John, who am I? I'm the, the one whom Jesus loves, the beloved disciple. And in sharing this, he's doing something. He's teaching us, right? teaching us the way in which we too are to walk and see things as we consider God and who he is. This is the identity that we must know. And knowing this identity is indeed the key to unlocking fulfillment, potential transformation, to know the identity. We are the one whom Jesus loves. And someone is sitting here thinking, well, I've heard that my whole life, you know. I've been coming to church. That's kind of one of the big things, you know, the love of God. Like, I know this already. Is that what we're talking about? Because I already know this, okay. Today's going to be boring, okay. Someone is thinking that. I know it. For real. And I'll just say this. Are you sure you know it? Like, do you really know it? Do you know it like John knew it? Do you know it? Do you know the love of Jesus? Do you know that you are loved by him? Do you know it? Well, that's what John wants you to have in this letter. I write these things to believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know. So that you may know. And the way that he does it is interesting, okay? He wants you to know it. And his approach for getting you to know it might seem counterintuitive. His approach in getting you to know it is to challenge it. Okay? We were talking about this week, and, and uh, Nita brought up a, a, an interesting analogy. She talked about how it's kind of like weightlifting, you know? Weightlifting is about getting your muscles stronger. And the way that you do it is by tearing them. <laughs> 
you know, you, you exert force and you tear your muscles and then they, they heal themselves and they get stronger, they get tougher. And what the Apostle John is doing this, in this letter is he wants you to know that you have eternal life. He wants you to know that you have salvation, to know that you're loved by God. And in order to, to make you know it, he's going to challenge it as in he's going to test it. Do you really know him? Do you really have salvation? Okay? And throughout the letter, there are tests, okay? There are tests that you are to apply to yourself to see, do you really know him? Do you really have salvation? Um, and that can be a little like, uh-oh, okay? That can be a little scary. Time to examine yourself. Like, do you pass the test, right? It's like a little like, uh-oh. His heart is for you to know that you know. The heart of this letter isn't to leave you scared and confused. The heart of this letter is for you to listen and to emerge stronger with muscles that have been torn but then strengthened, okay? Because there is an identity that you must know, and the identity is that you're known by him, loved by him. So there's, there's some tests that we're going to walk through, okay? Do you really know him, all right? So I'm going to pray, then we're going to dive into the beginning of of John's letter. Sound good? Okay. Father God, help me speak clearly, concisely, empowered by your spirit. Help it be evident to all that your word is, is speaking through me. Help all of us see through me into your word, understanding your word, and bringing forth power and life and transformation. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay. So we'll pick it up in verse 5. Yeah, yeah, we are going to get a new one of these, okay? Um, just click next. Thanks, Ryan. Um, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Okay, so you can see here he's contrasting walking in the light and walking in the darkness. So I was originally drawn to this passage in this. Uh, some weeks ago, Basil preached a message you know, contrasting, like, light and darkness. And it's a theme that's kind of developed through the sermons, we've noticed. Uh, seeing the truth versus being in the, in the dark. And here, once again, he's contrasting that. And he's talking about, on one hand, the one who has fellowship with him, knows him. And then, on the other hand, the one who is lying. Or more notably, um, in verse 8, the one who is deceiving himself. So here's someone who thinks they have salvation, but they don't, okay? And that, that's concerning. That should get our attention. Someone who thinks that they know him, but they're deceiving themselves. They don't actually know him, okay? So I told you there's tests in this book, and you see this over and over and over, over again, okay? The book is kind of repetitive, actually. It says a lot of things in different ways. Uh, the difference between true salvation and what we could call counterfeit. And the first one here 
Um, he talks about the difference between the one who is confessing their sins and the one who says, I don't have any sins. Okay? The one who says that they are without sin. In order to understand this book and this part, you have to understand, you can't think of this in terms of just external things. You have to think of it in terms of heart, posture, attitude. Okay? So, so what I mean is uh, when he says, you know, the one who says that they're without sin. I don't know if I've ever met someone who has said, like, I don't have sin in my life. Like, I, I'm, I don't, I'm, I've never sinned. I don't know if I've ever heard anyone say that. Um, it's possible that at the time this was written, there, there was a heretical idea floating around that you could be without sin. It's possible he is addressing that. But it means a lot more than that. And what we're talking about here is a heart attitude, a posture in life, right? It's a posture before God. So there's a, a, a contrast here. We have one posture before God that, that is, I'm good. You know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a good person. God's proud of me, you know? <laughs> and then on the other hand, you have a posture that says, I need your mercy, Lord. Um, the one who is confessing their sins to God versus... Versus the one who isn't. Once more, don't think of this in external means because I guarantee there are people today who with their mouth, they say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. <laughs> but their heart attitude towards God is, I'm a good person. All right? And anyone who spends time with this individual can sense that in the sense of you can very much feel Pride, and you can very much feel humility, okay? One of them uh, makes you kind of stand back, and the other one makes you feel comfortable and, and at ease, right? Um, it's a heart posture. You can't think of it in external means. And in the same token, the other, the contrast, the one who is confessing their sins to God. When I, when I say this, um, if we confess our sins, it's possible what's coming to your mind is, Perhaps like the, the Catholic ritual of, you know, going and sitting in the confessional booth and confessing your sins to a priest. The external things, right? That's not what we're talking about primarily. Okay, it's not what we're talking about. Um, maybe you have an experience with that and it's been good. It's been helpful. Maybe you have an experience with that where it's kind of like just legalistic and like I have to go and say this. Otherwise, I'm not going to get forgiven. That's not what we're talking about here at all, so let's just leave that alone. Um, what we're talking about here is a heart posture before God. Are we walking? Is this our life, a life of confessing? This isn't like, oh no, what if I have sins that I didn't confess? What if there's something I did and I, and I just didn't think about it? Um, beloved, that's not what this is about. It's a way of life. It's a heart posture before God. Do we walk and rely on mercy? Are we looking to him as one who needs mercy? And are we looking to him, like wanting that mercy? Or are we hiding in the dark? Okay? Are we looking at him saying, Lord, forgive me. Because if we are, the God that he is, who sent his son to be our forgiveness... He's very happy to give it. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, all of it. So that's the first contrast. And beloved, we need to get this one right. Like this is, 
This is first because this is the big one, okay? This is the big one. Do we look to him as sinners who need mercy, or do we feel like I'm doing okay, you know, on my own? We need to get this right because this is true salvation, okay? Um, This is actually knowing him. We also need to get this right for the sake of the mission, Someone wanders into the church here or, or, you know, perhaps wanders into our neighborhood or our workplace. And maybe they have very, very obvious uh, external sins in their life. If they don't sense a spirit of humility and and a posture that says, I'm a sinner that, that, that needs God's grace. If they don't sense that, they're going to walk out the door and not come back, and I don't blame them, okay? Because that, that doesn't represent the truth of the gospel. I've talked to you guys before about my friend, Reed, who had a great influence in my life when I was not a believer. He lived down the hall from me. Um, in the college dorm I was living in. And at that time, let me tell you, as a non-believer, someone whose life was not shaped by the word of God, my life was very obviously, very obviously marked with things that were not in line with the word of God, things that you would correctly call sin, right? Things, uh, you know, Lots of things. Drugs and partying and relations uh, with women. It was very clearly not shaped by God's word. And Reed, I got to know him. Somehow we became friends, even though he was a Christian. And we would talk about all sorts of things, right? We talk about all sorts of things. And sometimes we talk about those practices, habits, uh, things that were in my life. Sometimes we talk about that way of life that I was living. And Reed would tell me. You know, I remember specifically him saying word for word, I'm praying that God takes away your desire to use drugs. Like he would tell me that these things weren't good and weren't helpful. And they, they weren't leading to real fulfillment. He would, he would, talk about sins in my life, believe it or not. But I never got defensive. I never felt like, how dare you? I never, I never felt that because Reed always carried himself with humility as someone who relied on God's mercy. He never, I never, I never felt for an instant that he was judging me. I never felt for uh, an instant that he was condemning me or looking down on me. He was talking to me as someone who understood what it meant to be a sinner. And so I was able to hear him, right? For the sake of the mission, my desire is that we are people who we can speak the truth in love. And a huge part of what that means is we speak the truth with humility, We speak the truth as people who also very much rely on and need the mercy of God. 
Because if we don't have that posture, we're deceiving ourselves if we say we know him. That's, that's, that's what we have here. Okay. Let's keep going. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Um, that's how it's translated here, and that's fair because those are words we kind of understand. Um, other translations, most other translations, use a, an English word that we're probably less familiar with, saying that he is the propitiation for our sins. Um, and that word um, is a, a more nuanced, more correct, if I could say it that way, uh, translation, because it captures, again, some of the nuance of the Greek word. What it's saying here when it says Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, um, it's a word that means he is the payment. A propitiation is a payment to appease wrath, to turn away wrath. Okay? As if someone is angry with you, you pay them, and that anger turns away. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, the payment that turns away wrath. And I understand the concept and the mention of the wrath of God. It can make us, uh, like, let's not talk about that, you know. <laughs> um, that can happen. Uh, or, or for some, it's like, I don't, I don't believe in a, a, a wrathful God. Well, just slow down for a second. And I would just speak to that for just a moment. We want to believe in a wrathful God. Like we do, if you think about it. We all do. Um, I mean, we read the news. I read the news. There's war going on in the world. And sometimes if you read about some of the things that are happening, things that we know happen, sadly, more often than we want to think about, if you read about some of the things that happen specifically to, to women during times like this, um, you read about uh, some of the ways that women are treated, and you read about it as a husband and a father. And, and you're thankful that God is a God of wrath who repays, to be honest. Um, there are times that you hear about such injustice where you're thankful that all debts are going to get paid. Like, we want a God of wrath because a God of wrath is a God of justice, but here's the second thing. Jesus is the propitiation that turns his wrath away, that satisfies his wrath. Jesus being the one who took our punishment and died in our place. Where did we get that payment? Okay? The payment came from him. He's the one who gave it to us. And the point is, his first desire towards the wicked which is us, is not to punish us, okay? Like all of us, when I say that we're the wicked, I mean all of us in our natural state, we are, okay? Jesus said it, you, though you're evil, okay? You're evil, Jesus said that. His first desire is not to give us his wrath, though we deserve it. His first desire is to forgive us, and at great cost to himself, he sent his son to be our propitiation, to pay 
for the sins that we've committed to, to pay for our crimes, right? Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. He's the payment for all who believe in him. For all who believe in him, um, we're cleansed from all unrighteousness and forgiven. But look what he's saying here, because there's something a little um, counterintuitive. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Okay, I write this to you. This, this is a weird verse, if you think about it. A weird idea, okay? I mean, the gospel's weird, if you think about it. But here, this is weird. He's like, I'm telling you this. I'm telling you this because I don't want you to sin. But if you do sin, there's forgiveness. Okay, <laughs> just think about what he's saying. I don't want you to sin. That's why I'm telling you this. But if you do, you're fine. You're forgiven. Um, hmm. Okay. Like if I told my kids, okay, here's my credit card. Don't buy anything wasteful. But if you do, it's fine. You're not going to get in trouble. <laughs> like, like you understand? Like there's something going on here that seems a little odd. All right? 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 Okay? You need to see this. What is he doing here? I remember being a new believer, okay? Being young, with all the temptations that come with youth, right? And I remember reading a a Christian book, and it was saying, hey, when you're faced with temptation, it's very important that you know that even if you give in, his forgiveness is there. And I remember thinking, oh, this sounds dangerous, okay? This sounds like dangerous teaching, (laughs) If I give in to that, oh, who knows what's going to happen, right? <laughs> so I kind of turned away from it. I kind of like pushed that away, right? And my life continued with addictions for, for years, for real. And I can tell you this, having been set free from compulsive addictions, I can tell you an enormous part of it is accepting this. It's accepting that the weight of my forgiveness and salvation is not on my shoulders. That's a hard thing to grasp. It is. It really is hard to accept that. But that's the only way you're going to get free. Okay? That's why why John is saying this. I don't want you to sin, and that's why you need to know that. If you do, there's forgiveness. You need to believe that. How does that work? The transforming power, the transforming power that changes us is the power of knowing him and knowing his love. And so if you accept that and you believe it, there's a work that is happening internally that allows you to see things differently. Okay, like I told you, grasping the truth of who you are the identity of who you are, saved, sealed, forgiven. It's, it is the secret to unlocking your true potential and fulfillment. So that's why. I don't want you to sin, so you need to believe this. Let's keep going. Verse 3. 
of chapter 2. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is, is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Okay. Here, this part, if you read it on its own, seems to contradict what he just said, okay? Here he says, we, we, we know that we have come to know him. We know we have eternal life if we keep his commands. Wait, didn't you just get done saying that if we sin, we have forgiveness? Like, and now you seem to be saying the way that we know we have true salvation is if we keep his commands. I'm lost, right? <laughs> All right. What's going on here? Once more, to understand this book, you have to understand that he's talking about heart posture, and you have to read it in order. We know he's not saying, first of all, we know he's not saying you need to obey his commands perfectly, otherwise you're not forgiven, because he made it abundantly clear in the first chapter, if you say that you obey his commands perfectly, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. Okay? So we know that. And he just got done saying we need to believe that we have forgiveness even if we sin. So what do you mean when you say we know that we know him if we obey his commands? What is he getting at? Once more, John understands something. He understands that for the one who sees Jesus, for the one who sees this mercy, this God who gives mercy, the one who sees this love through the eyes of faith, he knows that with that comes transformation. And our posture in life changes. Everything changes. It means there's a new direction in life. It doesn't mean you're going to live a, a perfect life and never sin anymore, but it does mean there's going to be a new direction of your life. He says in the next chapter, we're not going to get into it today, Anyone born of God does not keep on sinning, as in they don't keep going that way because they've been born of God. It's not possible, okay? Anyone who is born of God does not keep living that direction. It is not possible. There is a new life there. So here, once more, he's not saying that you live a perfect life, okay? But he's saying there is a new posture. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands, Anyone who, who says I know him but doesn't keep his commands is a liar. From time to time, this is honest, from time to time, you'll hear someone in one breath confess Jesus as Lord and in another breath dismiss the authority of the scriptures. He says, if we claim to know him, we have to live as Jesus did. I mean, Jesus said every heaven and earth will pass away before a single dot, before a single pen stroke. I mean, there's, there's much, there, there's a long conversation to be had regarding how we interpret the scriptures. As you can see, walking through John's letter, it's, it's not always easy. But, this is something I believe. Our posture towards Jesus is the same as our posture towards his word. I mean, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord if you don't do what I say? Okay, I'm not, I'm not really your Lord. If you don't do what I say. Once more, it doesn't mean we do it perfectly, okay? doesn't mean we do it perfectly, but it means that our heart is we want to follow. Like we look to his word and we say, Lord, show me. 
okay? That's all this is saying. It's saying true salvation means there's a posture in life when it comes to God's word and his commands. We, we want to follow. Okay, let's keep going. So that was, that was, that's the second test. The first test we saw, are, are we people who, who have a posture of confessing? Are we are, are people who have a posture of wanting to obey? And then here's another one, and this is a big one. This is a, a big one. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet, I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. Okay, you got to ask some questions here. Like, um, okay, verse 7, he says, I'm not writing you a new command. <laughs> and verse 8, he says, actually, it is a new command. <laughs> it's kind of like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? As in, the command is that we are to love one another. And I'm sure you've heard that before. Everyone knows that. The, the religious and the non-religious alike know that. We should love one another. Go to any culture in the world, and they're going to agree. Love is good, right? He's saying that's not new. But then he says it is new. What does he mean? Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Meaning this. We've always known that we should love, but now we know what it means. Now we get it. Now we understand that this is a kind of love not for those who deserve it. It's a kind of love that's, that's guided by the principle of mercy because that's what he did. We see him. We, we know his character. He was humble. Um, we know this love because we've received love that we didn't deserve. We deserved wrath, yet we were given love. We see that. And so this is the kind of love we give. It's a love that we give to those who don't deserve it. That's what's unique about the Christian. Jesus said this in lots of ways. If you love those who love you, what credit is that? Everyone does that. But if you love your enemies, then you are like my father. Um, this is the kind of love to love one another, and this is what we must do in the church, because in the church, we have people, it says, the, the, the darkness is passing, and the true light is already shining. It's passing as in we're being transformed. It's still here. We're still being transformed from that old posture to the new posture, okay? We're, we're changing. We're being transformed. So what that means in the church, we still have, we still have sin, Right? And the reason churches split and the reason churches we fight with each other is because we don't give one another the love that we've been given, right? And so this is a major test. This is a test of true salvation. Is this the kind of love that we walk in, the kind of love for people who don't deserve it? Uh, 
John, I told you, he was, he's called the, sons of, the son of thunder, right? And the reason that is is because he was kind of wild. Um, he was, he was kind of wild in the sense there was this one time when you had uh, this town that Jesus was in and the people, the people didn't want to hear Jesus' word. And John and his brother, they say to Jesus, how about we call down fire from heaven and destroy these people? <laughs> you know, and Jesus rebuked them, you know, as you can imagine, you know. Um, yet now John is known as the apostle of love. And, and every time that you speak, like here in verse 12, it says, I'm writing you, dear children. He always speaks with this, like, tenderness, right? Dear children, like my friends, my dear friends, the apostle of love, always talking about love, this, this gentle, tender person. But when Jesus met him, he was the son of thunder who wanted to destroy people with fire. That's the transforming power of God's love and mercy. Okay. And so I'm going to end with this. This is, this is how he ends this section. He says this. I'm writing you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, don't think of this as different messages for different ages of people. It's a literary device. Okay, this applies to all of us, men and women, young and old, in the church, in Christ. And here now he is speaking to the identity that we need to have, right? Identity. Grasp it. In him, you have beat the devil. You believe in him? In him, you beat the devil. You're a victor. You've overcome. You know him. You need to know that you know him. All right? Are you relying on his mercy? You need to know that you know him. Victors. Steph, do you know the song, We Are the Champions? Can you just come up and play that? <laughs> do you really know it? Can you play it? If you do, grab your guitar and start singing it as I'm praying. <laughs> it's just like in my mind. Like, we are the champions, my friends. Right? Okay. Next time we do this sermon, we'll be ready. <laughs> Who am I, says John. I'm the apostle. I'm the one whom Jesus loves. Like, let's, let's hold that. Let that truth transform us. Father God, let this be true of us. Help us perceive you. Help us know that we need your mercy. Help us be honest with ourselves as we consider your holiness, your truth. Help us turn to you and not hide our sin. And let us be transformed by the truth that we have forgiveness. If we sin, we have forgiveness. It's who you are. Um, do that work of love in us, Lord. Thank you that you have made us victors. We've overcome in you, we have overcome the evil one. Um, give us such confidence in ourselves, in you, Lord. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.